Amanda, you're one of the composers featured on the first evening concert of the Gathering of Canadian Sound Art, which is a sound art caucus jointly presented by the Independent Media Arts Alliance and New Adventures in Sound Art. But you're not just a sound artist. Your practice is very multidisciplinary. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself as an artist and the path or paths that have led you to create in so many disciplines. Sure. Um, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that we would start off light, you know. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, I work across uh, many different disciplines. A lot of what um, drives or dictates the my medium of choice usually is the subject matter. And I try to just make myself open um, to following where it takes me. So um, I have training in photography, experimental film, contemporary dance. Um, sound is something I'm not formally trained in. It's more something that I got interested in and started learning and trying to learn from other people as much as possible. Um, and yeah, so I this project in particular is uh, about the Radio Canada International shortwave towers that were located in Sackville, New Brunswick, where I lived. And so it's taken me through many di uh, disciplines. It started out with a, a radio sync uh, because I was, uh, I'd heard that local people in the area heard the radio through their sink. And <laughs> I was, yeah, I, and apparently it's a real thing. And I was jealous because my sink didn't play the radio. Um, and I wanted, you, you can't just go buy a Sony Sinkman. So uh, I took the schematic for a Foxhole radio and tried building it out of plumbing. So in 2000, I think 2008, 2009, every paycheck I'd go and buy another 12 feet of copper pipe um, and built this pretty big, long sink that was meant to um, function as a radio trying to build a radio with plumbing and no uh, electronic components whatsoever. So I was kind of part sculpture, part sound, part performance. And it's such a small town that I became this kind of town character with my radio sync. And so, <laughs> yeah, people would stop me on, you know, at the grocery store at the cafe and be like, have you heard the radio in your sink yet? And then they would start offering me their stories about hearing it in their fridge or their toaster and so I started carrying a sound recorder to record these stories because they were incredible, which then led me to make a film, which has just started uh, playing at festivals um, a few weeks ago, actually, called Spectres of Shortwave. And it's a two-hour uh, experimental documentary about those radio towers. And when they, after I started filming, they announced they were tearing them down. So I filmed the demolition. But in the meantime, uh, while I was working on the film, I really became obsessed with the sound of the towers. So I built contact microphones and there was about a two year period between when they stopped transmitting to when they tore them down. So because they were no longer um, operating as high voltage, um, I was able to go on the site and clamp my microphones onto the towers. And so I have an extensive library of contact microphone recordings of those towers that I used in the film soundtrack, but now I'm using for a lot of other um performances and installations, including including the one I'll be presenting uh, in Toronto at the Gathering of Canadian Sound Art. Um, that piece is um, part of a larger body of work called Requiem for Radio. And Requiem for Radio has five parts to it. So one of them, which I'll be presenting on Thursday night, is called Requiem for Radio Pulse Decay, where using a theremin, um, 
run through uh, some programs. It triggers the contact microphone recordings of those towers as well as images of them. So it's essentially like playing the ghosts of the radio towers with radio waves. And then there's a few other projects that kind of expand on that, um, sculpturally building a scale model of the site. It's uh, Requiem for Radio, New Dead Zones. It's a 50-foot wide, 26-foot deep, uh, 12-foot high scale model of the site with capacitive sensors where viewers can touch the scale model of the site and trigger those sounds as well. So there's, um, yeah, it's taken me through all sorts of... uh, uh, disciplines all the all on the same the same subject I just try to be open and let it uh, take me where it will and um, yeah so you found a, a ton of inspiration in this RCI shortwave site yeah yeah and that's not even I haven't even met there's like photo series I've done I got my climbing certification I climbed two of the towers um, and made some art about that I collected artifacts from the site and made sculptural works One of them is called um, Radio Towers Like Wind Chimes, where I hang six 10-foot-long sections of the radio towers from the ceiling of the gallery. I've only shown it twice because it requires an art gallery with a 20-foot ceiling that can handle, like, the weight of six 200-pound radio tower (laughs) chimes. Maybe a bit of a tall order. Yeah, yeah, kind of. I might have finished the run of that one because it's like, yeah, it's. I hang them each one from one piece of aircraft cable, and so even though they're big, heavy metal industrial um, objects or artifacts, they I try to hang them as delicately as possible so that they look like wind chimes. And then I hang speakers among them. And one time I did it with um, rear video projection. That sounds amazing. Does this happen often in your practice where you you find this sort of endless source of inspiration for your creativity? Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, Before the Radio Tower Project, I had a series called Last Days of Snow, and it was all about the end of um, analog television broadcasts. And that one spawned several, like, uh, there were performances, there was video installations. There was quite a lot that happened with Last Days of Snow. And interestingly, shortwave actually goes over AM and so did analog television. So those two, it was not my plan, but those two wound up following nicely on each other. And now I'm embarking on a series of works about water. And I thought, finally, I'm doing something other than radio waves. I was like, oh, water waves, waves. Maybe this is my thing. (laughs) Your entire body of work is just going to be completely cohesive. That's that's pretty good. kind of nice how it's working out that way um so i had to ask do you have you must have an emotional or philosophical attachment to the site after working so extensively with it and around it yeah it's um i i think i i wound up being the emotional attachment developed gradually and then i was surprised at how intense it was i mean initially it was more of i thought i thought my initial um, relationship with the site was purely you know, scientific or objective. I was fascinated by the scientific phenomenon of um, what's called external rectification, which is the principle explaining how you hear the radio in your sink or your fridge or your toaster. So I was fascinated by that and the history of the site and how it worked. But the more I worked, I think it was actually through the contact microphone recordings uh, because I spent so many hours out there alone. Um, I mean, I did 48 days of filming, about nine or 10 of those, I had a crew of two or three people, but a lot of the times I was alone. And then I didn't even count how many days I went sound recording, because that was all a lot of that was done by myself with the contact microphones and 
Um, so being out there alone and clamping microphones onto the radio towers and you hear, when you take the headphones off, you don't hear anything. Well, you hear the wind and the crickets and the birds. But when you put the headphones on, you hear these beautiful drones. And it was almost like hearing a heartbeat. You know, I felt like I was hearing something very special. And even though I knew it was purely mechanical and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's science, it's natural, it's part of the physical world, there was something really kind of beautiful about it and intimate. And eventually each of the 13 towers, you know, they had their own sounds, which I started equating with voices. So it was like each tower had their own voice and they started developing their own, to me, personalities. Maybe I was going a little crazy from being up in the bar, <laughs> the hot sun with no sunscreen, that could have been it. But it, I quickly anthropomorphized them. I mean, I didn't really think that they had uh, personalities, but it felt that way emotionally. So when the demolition happened, it really, uh, it, I was surprised at how much it, it, uh, it hit me when the first one fell. I mean, it didn't hit me. It didn't fall, obviously, <laughs> standing a ways back filming. But the just my heart jumped in my chest when it hit the ground. And it was like, whoa, okay, this is it. It's really, it's really over. And, um, and then when the last one fell as well, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty heavy. Um, well, I was going to ask you if you knew that they were sort of demolition bound before you started recording and you, and it sounds like you didn't. So you sort of ended up recording a piece of sonic history, which I think we're all for the better for. And how important do you think it is that we preserve pieces of sonic history? I think it's very important. I mean, to me, it seems um, recording the sounds of those towers and I mean, the towers themselves, not just the radio that they broadcast was just as important as recording the images um, the images obviously are important, but a lot of people have photographed and filmed those towers before because they're quite iconic on the marsh. And in terms of the radio uh, programs that they broadcast, obviously there's archives and recordings of that because, you know, either the people making the broadcasts or people who like the programs can record them. But those contact microphone recordings of the towers and then also the field recordings of the, the wind in them and the, the birds and the crickets around them, uh, what it sounded like at night – those those are sounds that not everyone could access because when they were operating, it was a high voltage site you, with a lot of um, RF radiation. You couldn't just go on there. So the, that two-year window that I had access to the site um, when they were no longer transmitting was really this kind of precious privilege to be able to go and hear these sounds. And so I think that recording them was important because it allows other people to hear them and kind of bear witness and develop a relationship they wouldn't have otherwise had access to. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think people will be thankful that they have access to this type of recording. And I know earlier you mentioned that in some of the pieces that you've worked with, with the Requiem for Radio, there is a ghostly feeling to them. And I'm wondering if there's any elements of the piece sonically that are reminiscent of a Requiem. Um, not in pulse decay yet. Um, in, so the Requiem for Radio, there's five parts. There's pulse decay, which I'll be presenting, uh, in, on Thursday night, uh, solo performance for theremin, uh, audio and image. Um, then there's new dead zones, which is the, uh, installation of the scale model with the 13 towers and capacitance sensors that people can play. Um, radio cowers is an instrument I'm building referencing the cows that lived around the towers. Um, <clears throat> uh, deviant trend 
deviant receptions is a revisiting of the radio sync to make it work. And then finally, the fifth piece, uh, Requiem for Radio, Full Quiet Flutter. That one will have elements of a requiem. That one is being presented in next June in Moncton, and that's a performance using the new Dead Zones installation, which is the scale model of the towers, the pulse decay, the radio camera. So all those other elements will be combined into a performance where I'm definitely hoping to incorporate elements of actual, um, at least one historical requiem, but also to, to work with the requiem format um, in constructing uh, that performance. And that's probably going to be about an hour long performance. It's in development now. Um, I've working, um, I'll now all of a sudden brought on board a, a new collaborator, Martin Marier from Montreal, who's a composer and expertly adept at programming and electronics. And we have similar aesthetic ideas and are working well together. So we're kind of conceiving a lot of the full quiet flutter piece um, together as, as it will be presented in June. Fantastic. And so I've listened to some of the excerpts of I'm not sure if it was this piece or just other parts of the broader re- Requiem for Radio, but there's a, I heard a lot of low frequencies and sounds that you really feel in your guts, and the result is, as a listener, you feel very much enveloped by the sound. Is that the sort of feeling that you were going for? Yeah, yeah, it was. And actually, if you've heard those sounds online, they've probably changed since then. <laughs> I've taken the source uh, contact microphone recordings, and they went through two stages. One, when I was working on the film, um, after finishing the sound mix, I still had another day or two left at uh, Studio Prim in Montreal, and I was collaborating with uh, Bruno Belanger, who was um, a sound mixer, but we collaborated on the sound design as well. And so I told him, I was like, well, I have this other piece, Requiem for Radio, where I want to use these uh, contact microphone recordings. And so because there's 13 towers, it worked perfectly to create that. It's amazing that there's, you know, 13 notes in a chromatic scale. So um, Bruno is able to, you know, we were working with like some hum remover filters uh, backwards to uh, zero in on uh, some fundamental frequencies to assign uh, musical notes to each tower. So it creates a chromatic scale. And then um, working with Martin, like, you know, like a year later, um, he's kind of had some, I give some room to, to play with the sounds as well and to pull out uh, some of the more percussive sounds and the mechanical sounds from the wires and the rattling on the tower. And so now those two have been combined. So in the performance I'll be presenting in Toronto, instead of just triggering one sound of each tower, it'll be simultaneously triggering two sounds, one being the... Um, processed sound with the the note uh, as part of a chromatic scale, more of a tone, and then the other one being the more percussive mechanical sound of the wind acting upon the um, the wires, the hooks, the all the, the mechanical elements that rattle. So the sounds have become much more complex and uh, musical, but I still want to have that deep, um, rumbling, haunting feeling coming from them. And I hope that that's being achieved. <laughs> From what I heard, absolutely. Um, looking at some of your broader work, I noticed that a sense of home and nostalgia seems to be present in several of your sound artworks, for sure. Can you talk a bit about that? That's interesting. I never thought of it that way. Um, yeah, I'm interested a lot in uh, memory, for sure. I'm definitely interested in uh, memory and mnemonic devices and how we use um, film, photography, audio recordings, etc., to 
to almost hold on to our memories or to replace the need for remembering things. I think sometimes we rely too heavily on photos and home movies. Um, for me, sound uh, was also a way to, in how, how would I say, to kind of enliven the mnemonic devices. That's not really the word I'm looking for. But <laughs> um, and when I was in Vancouver for a while, I would uh, I. For, Actually, no, when I lived in Halifax, I stopped taking pictures of friends and family for a while because I was a photographer and it felt like work and it just felt artificial. So what I did instead was I just saved all of my voicemails. Um, and then from time to time, you know, take a long, hot bath and listen to them. And it's amazing to listen to voicemails that were left, you know, five, six, ten years ago. Uh, there's something different that's captured in sound that's not captured in photos. And discovering like when my grandmother passed away in the basement, there was an old reel to reel tape recorder with all sorts of quarter uh, reels of quarter inch tape from 1966. And there were recordings of family sing songs of uh, my aunts and uncles playing with the tape recorder when they were kids. Oh, uh, wow. It was just this amazing discovery and that stuff. It doesn't come through in photos. And so sonically in terms of memory and a sense of home, I think, I think in terms of a sense of home, I'm more interested in the idea of memory and what, what's, what's kept and what's lost in audio versus image. And, uh, yeah. That's really interesting. Um, now, this question I, I am particularly interested in because I'm an Atlantic Canadian and I find there to be a difference in, in my medium, which is more classical music. But do you find that there are any stylistic or philosophical markers of the aesthetics, you know, working in Atlantic Canada, as opposed to Vancouver, as you mentioned, or somewhere like Toronto? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I think that in Atlantic Canada, well, the, there's um, a much smaller new media scene. I mean, there are artists working in new media and electronics, but definitely not as many compared to when I lived in uh, Vancouver and Amsterdam. Uh, I remember in Vancouver, you know, there was a big community of, of you know, electroacoustic music and, you know, electronic arts and interactive arts. Out here in Atlantic Canada, you're a lot more hard pressed to go find, to, to find that stuff. It does happen. Uh, there's a few artist-run centers. I used to run a music festival that would uh, program uh, electroacoustic concerts and uh, other experimental music stuff. Uh, but yeah, I think for me, the in terms of stylist, stylistically, I'm not sure if I want to pronounce myself on what the the regional style is. <laughs> but Fair enough. Yeah, but I would definitely say one of the things I find hardest living out here is. Um, access i mean there is a very vibrant art scene and it's excellent and there's a lot of really strong programming but in terms of new media interactive arts and electroacoustic composition it is happening but not as much in larger centers and as an artist um you know wanting to work that way it's uh it's good to go be able to go and see and hear stuff you know when you're in a big city you can go to a lot of concerts and you can you know go have a beer or a coffee with a uh, fellow artist who works in the same discipline and bounce ideas off each other and get excited about it. But when you live in a small region, um, like right now I'm actually living outside of the city of Moncton in an area called Lutz Mountain. So I'm surrounded by woods, you know, so it's not, it's not as accessible. So I, for me, it's important to be able to travel as much as possible so I can go and hear what other people are doing. 
Absolutely. And I think that's where something like a sound art caucus really comes in handy. And you know, the concert is part of that larger gathering discussing the sound art climate in the country. Um, so broadly speaking, um, what excites you the most about what's happening in Canada in terms of sound art and media art and new media? I think right now I'm excited about the possibility of organizations um, organizing themselves to <laughs> collaborate to collaborate together and support one another because the country is so broad. And yes, we do have some very active large urban centers like Montreal, Toronto and Vancouver. Most of the country is not in a large urban center. And there are some very exciting festivals happening in remote and rural areas. But um, speaking from experience, it can be hard to organize stuff like that in a, in a silo. And so what I'm excited about, especially for this upcoming um, caucus and sound meetings, is to get all of these organizations from across the country together to meet each other and to talk about ways that um, collaborations can be possible. You know, if, for instance, if a festival in one province is bringing an international artist and they're in touch with a few other small festivals, you know, that it makes it easier to organize a tour. You know, once you get the artist over from Europe or up from the States, once they're there, then it's, you know, more affordable and easier to manage if a bunch of, you know, if, if they hit a bunch of festivals going across the country. So it's good for the artists coming to Canada, but also very good for the festivals if we can work together to collaborate and keep each other in the loop about who's programming what or what's going on. And then also exchanges, you know, uh, one festival sends an artist over here, another one sends an artist over there. So I think, yeah, I'm most excited about the possibility of collaboration and support across the country. Awesome. Well, Amanda, I'm really looking forward to the performance on Thursday. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much. And I should probably also mention that uh, this piece that I'm showing Thursday, Requiem for Radio, uh, I spent quite a while working on it at the Wave Farm last fall uh, during a residency there. So I wouldn't be where I am with this piece if it wasn't for the support of the Wave Farm.